you, Norman, for praying, and thank you, Tyler and Sarah, for leading us in song. Sheila woke up today and was sick, and Tyler stepped in last minute, and uh, very much appreciate that. Uh, I just have to say, before I get to my sermon, it was wonderful to hear all your voices on that last song. Uh, I was very much encouraged this weekend at a conference in Calgary with 1,600-plus people, led by one piano and all hymns. And it was glorious. It was great to hear congregational singing. So I just want to say it's blessed me again to hear your voices. Nothing beats the singing of the saints. Amen? Yeah, it's beautiful. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18 today. Uh, and so as you're flipping there, I just want to say that uh, the Bible, it's, it's a wonderful, amazing book. And each Sunday... Christians from all traditions gather together week after week to hear the words read from the Word of God, preached from the Bible, but when they encounter God in His Word, some are left a little confused. It might not be what they expect. Because one of the most amazing things about the Bible, about the Christian scriptures, is just how gritty they are. How this earthly, this worldly, they are, how human they are. It's, it's, it's not that there aren't mysterious passages. It's not that there aren't otherworldly passages in there. Because after all, we are dealing with the transcendent God. But on the whole, the Bible happens on a human level. It was written in plain language. A lot of the authors didn't have much education. When you read the Greek, it's actually poor grammar, poor Greek for some of them. It's about ordinary people living ordinary lives, living with a God who is constantly breaking into the midst of the mundane days of life. So we read about people who are dealing with doubt. We read about people who are dealing with pain and anger there's relational turmoil, there's lovers betrayed, there's friendships on the brink of collapse, there's churches about to split. That's, we're not prone to any of that, right? We've never experienced any of that. The Bible doesn't present the God who simply helps us, who overlooks or transcends the difficulties of everyday life. It presents a God who meets people in the middle of the difficulties of everyday life, in the middle of our mess. Because I don't know if it's just me, but how many else have messy situations in their life? Yeah, it gets messy, it gets hard. So whether you're a confessing Christian or a confessing skeptic here today, or simply you're oblivion to the whole deal, the Bible is a book that happens on our level, in our world, and is meant for us to grapple with, and even meant for us to understand. And we feel this weight of the grittiness of the Bible, the down-to-earthness of the Bible when we read through the letter of the Corinthians. It's very in-your-face. It deals with very real problems. And the church of Corinth is in the middle of a real mess. We've been detailing this now for a number of weeks. And one of the biggest issues is what we're going to hit today. This is where it's all stemming from. They have little respect for their founding leader, Paul. In short, the Corinthians believe that they are entitled to a certain kind of leader, and Paul doesn't quite measure up to that leader. They feel that the world should spin on the axis of their desires, preference, and tastes. We all have one of those in our family, don't we? They deserve a different scenario than the one that they are living. They feel as though Paul owes it to them to adapt his personality, to adapt his style and his ministry methods for their liking. 
So as we walk through the passages of this scripture, we're going to zero in on the subject of entitlement, and we're going to do so through three different categories. The dangers of entitlement, the realities of entitlement, and then the ends of entitlement. So with that, I pray you have your Bibles open, because we're going to start reading starting in verse 1. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, of the brother of the Lord and Cyphus? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who attend a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If it is for ox that God is concerned, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in the rightful claim of you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple serve uh, uh, service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure, secure such provisions, for I would rather die than have any, anyone deprave me of the ground for my boasting." For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this, uh, sorry, for if I do this of my own will, I have reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Give me a second to wet the whistle there after all that reading. But let us begin by looking at the first category, which is the dangers of entitlement. Statistics say that entitlement is on a rise in North America. It has been for a while, and after COVID, like many things, it has amplified this problem. But not, it's not a new problem. I know we tend to, as we get older, we say, oh, that's just the next generation's thing. Oh, that's just their problem. And we ignore all the, the rampant problems that our generation has. Now, I'm not saying that this next generation is not entitled. Statistics tell us otherwise. But entitlement is not a new problem to this generation. We are all familiar with entitlement. 
Some extreme examples that I think of when I think of entitlement is I've seen videos, and I'm sure you have as a kid whose parent goes and buys them a new car for their birthday, and the kid throws a temper tantrum because it's the wrong color or because it's used or a year too old. And you think, if I could just punch that kid, you know. Um, or you, you all have met a kid who has never been told no in their life. And any time they are told no or something's taken from them, they throw temper tantrum upon temper tantrum. And those temper tantrums follow them all the way into adulthood. And if you've been part of a church for any number of years, you've probably seen some of those people at our AGMs, right? That just happens. People who are not told no end up being entitled. And the source of entitlement is what I call the main character phenomenon. They believe that they are the main characters in the movie of life, and it produces a spirit, a sense, a character of entitlement. When people view themselves as the protagonist in their own special life uh, uh, narrative, they end up running on a sense of entitlement. They believe these things, well, of course I'm supposed to get into that school. This is my story after all. Of course all of my hard work pays off in the end. Of course I get the promotion, I get the girl, I get the guy, I get the home, I get the picturesque family. Of course I get the kids who end up being even more self-absorbed and narcissistic than me. Of course I do. Right? (laughs) That's my story. But here's the problem. The problem lies is when the bubble pops, when reality sets in. And here's the thing about the bubble. It always pops. It always pops. And I say all this to set us up, to set the table, to see and understand what Paul is dealing with. Because rampant entitlement, like I said, is not just a modern problem, but it's present here in the Corinthian church. Look at what Paul says in verses 1 to 3. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Verse 3 shows us that Paul is beginning a defense for his position because his position is in the beginnings of being under attack. If you read, if you flip on over to 2 Corinthians after church today and read through the epistle to the 2 Corinthians, you will see the issue that we are dealing with today in full bloom. Right now, it's just kind of in bud form. It's just beginning to sprout. And Paul is being put on trial. He's being backed into a corner, and he's defending himself. And we all know what it's like to be put on trial by somebody, and we all know what it's like to put somebody on trial. And we put people on trial when they don't fit into our special life narrative. And when they, don't, when they don't fit in, we begin to examine them. We begin to scrutinize them with surgical precision. Right? We pour over every word of the email that they send to us and every word, and we read into every line. Why would they say it like that? Clearly, they hate me. Every text message, when you see their name pop up on your phone, is like a bomb threat. What are they going to say now? Every time you see them in person, it's an awkward, tense, four smiles affair. Why do we treat people like this who don't fit into our, our, in our, into our life story? It's because we've put a filter on them. And we're trying to filter them out because they don't fit in to our individual, indiv- I can't say that word, individual life. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> the Corinthians are doing this to Paul. They're trying to filter Paul out. So what are they attacking? What are they nitpicking? Well, verses 1 to 2 gives us an idea. He says, am I not free? 
Well, we'll see that they're attacking his ministry methods. Am I not an apostle? They are attacking his vocation, his calling. Have I not seen the risen Lord Jesus? They're attacking the veracity of his words and his grounds for his ministry as an apostle. Are you not the workmanship? Are you not my workmanship of the Lord, my seal of my apostleship? They are on their way to totally ignoring and denying the instrumental role that Paul has played in bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to Corinth. And, and you might be wondering, well, why? Why are they doing this to Paul? Why are they putting him on trial? Well, in short, they feel like they're entitled to a particular kind of leader and they're entitled to control the situation in, in order to get that kind of leader they want. They want a leader that is strong, articulate, impressive, showy, and culturally acceptable. Remember, this was a real issue in Corinth. We dealt with this in chapters 1, 2, and 3 about uh, the, the Corinthian culture wanting to identify with certain leaders to, to align with them, and they were using that as one-upmanships. I belong to Paul. I belong to Paulos, right? And we saw back that in the beginning of this letter. And they want to identify with someone who is respected, someone who is well-known, someone who has charisma and rhetorical flourish of the popular speakers that have passed through Corinth. But here's the problem. Paul says this about himself, too. He doesn't have any of that. And their message to the apostle was essentially shape up or ship out. Fit in, start fitting into our special life narrative, Paul, or it's over. It's done. But Paul already dealt with this problem early on in the letter, reminding the Corinthians that earthly leaders are nothing. They're nothing. All we do as earthly leaders are maybe we plant, maybe we water, but God brings the growth, he says. Meaning I can throw all the seed I want, I can dump all the water I want, but if God is not bringing the growth, I'm doing it in vain. He's pointing our eyes that God is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Not Paul, not the government, not me, but Jesus. So what do they want Paul to change? Interestingly enough, this, is, this may be hard for us to understand because of the cultural distance and difference between us and the Corinthians, but they were upset because Paul wouldn't take their money. Now, we have the opposite today, right? We have guys on TV who sneeze into handkerchiefs and say, send me five bucks and this will heal you, right? <laughs> we got Peter Popoff on there blessing tap water and selling it to the nation. But not with Paul. He's not making use of this right. And they're, and they're mad about this. And you may think, why are they mad about that? Well, because the strong, popular, culturally palatable leaders and speakers of the day made their living by, one, collecting their money by their, from their hearers, and two, living in the homes of their hearers. And this gave the wealthy among the population, the wealthy individuals, leverage and sway over the relationship with their leaders. It was a means for them to create a sort of relational debt, ensuring that even though an individual was leading, he was on a rope. He was ultimately dependent upon the sponsor. And if the leader started doing or saying something that didn't line with that person's values or morals or whatever, he starts threatening them. Hey, I'm going to stop paying you. Find a different part, space to live. They want it control. So the Corinthians are looking for a win-win. They want a respectable leader to identify with but in whom they can control. But with Paul, they're in a lose-lose situation. Frankly, he's not, very, he's not a very flattering leader to be associated with. And they, are by, and they have no means uh, how they can control him because he won't take their money. 
And in accordance with entitlement, they, start, they need to start manipulating the situation in order to filter Paul out of the story. And that's their goal. And modern people, even Christians, we're not strangers to this type of entitlement. Right? Of course I deserve that race. Of course I deserve the respect of my peers. Of course I deserve a spouse that acts this way and definitely doesn't act that way in public. Of course we deserve attention and affection and love and a sense of meaning and purpose. Of course I deserve the thrill of travel. Why does other people get to travel? I deserve to travel. Of course I get to deserve to eat in the best and fanciest restaurants. Of course my Instagram or social media posts should get the most likes. This is what we deserve. This is what the world owes us. Doesn't everyone else know that this is my special life story? And so this entitlement that we see today and this entitlement that we see in, the, in Corinth, there's dangers to this. There's three dangers. The first is that it distorts our perception of reality because an inflated view of self puts us in a position of deserving and it puts everyone else around us in our lives in a position of debt. They owe us something. And this is precisely what's happening in Corinth. They're mad. They can't see straight. They think that they are entitled to, they deserve a certain kind of leader, and Paul owes it to them to either adapt or depart, shape up or ship out. Second danger of entitlement is it impairs our ability to receive gifts. Now, I know nobody's going to admit this, but we have all been and had these horrible thoughts in our minds where we've helped somebody, helped them clean, move, whatever, and they've given us a gift and we go, well, 30 bucks? I should have probably got 50. And we're not grateful for what they gave us. And, and it hinders our ability to receive gifts. And this is the problem with the Corinthians. They were given the greatest gift that anyone could ever be given, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, by one of the greatest leaders in church history. And their entitlement is overshadowing the gift that is in Paul. It's making them, giving them a skewed, a skewed perspective of who Paul is, and they, des- they think they deserve more. The third danger of entitlement is that it turns us against the world and against the ones we love. That's the natural conclusion of entitlement. This happens in marriages. This happens in friendships and even work relationships. I believe that I am entitled to this. You owe it to me to be this type of person, to play this role, to act this way, to talk to me in this tone. Here's your script. That's what we're saying. I've written you a script, and you are to follow it. And if you don't, well, I'm going to find someone to replace you who will follow your, my script. Entitlement, church, is the bane of all relationships. And it was certainly the bane of the relationship between the Corinthians and Paul. Paul was not living, not following their script. They have turned on him. They have put him on trial. They, they have, they, 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 and now it's time for Paul, who's being backed into a corner, to make his defense. Which brings me to the second point, which is the realities of our entitlement. The Corinthian sense of entitlement has given the Corinthians uh, a skewed perspective of Paul. As we said, they're unable to see him as the gift that he is to the church, and they, and they're, they're, they want to get rid of him. And Paul offers his defense. He cuts through the Corinthian sense of entitlement, and he, begin, he does so by appealing to the foundation of entitlement. 
And we look at this in verses 4 to 7, which says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brother of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul's saying, you want to talk about entitlements? You want to talk about what's deserved, who has rights? Okay, I'll take off the gloves. I'll play your game. I'll fight with you. And he says, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm entitled to your money. I have every right to take your money. In fact, your argument's weak. Let me help you develop your argument because that's just what Paul does. And so from verses 4 to 14, Paul lays out an extended argument for why he has every right to take the money of the Corinthians for doing the work of ministry. And I can't take credit for this five-tier pattern, although you probably see it yourself, but I'm just stealing this right from David Pryor, a commentator on this. He says that there's a five-tier argument to Paul's uh, logic here, and we see the first in verses four to seven, which we just read. He says, these are the ordinary practices, and his ordinary practices show or demand that Paul should be paid. He says, soldiers don't serve at their own expense. Uh, viticulturists, right? They don't refrain from eating grapes and drinking wine from their vineyards. Shepherds don't have to pay for the milk produced by their flocks. And in the same way, Paul, who guarded the Corinthian church like a soldier, who tended to the Corinthian church like a vineyard, and who cared for it like a shepherd, had every right to make his living from the Corinthian church as a minister. Ordinary practices, Paul says, demand this. The second tier of his argument is found in verses 8 to 10. And this is, uh, this is where uh, it is the scriptural precedence, this tier uh, in his argument. He says in verses 8 to 10, Do I say uh, these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out its grain. Is it for ox that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Is it, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope, and sharing in the crop. So here, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 to show that laborers, even non-human laborers like ox, have a right to derive their sustenance from their work. And then verses 11 to the beginning of 12, Paul appeals to common sense. He says, if we have not sown, sorry, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Paul's saying, your logic makes sense, Corinthians. You're right. I'm entitled to your money. That's the way the world works. You put in your time, you get paid. But on top of ordinary practices, on top of scriptural precedent, and on top of common sense, Paul then appeals to religious custom. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that these who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's saying, pick a religion. Any religion, Paul says, go to the Jewish temple or take a walk downtown Corinth to the temple of Apollo or Octavia and you will see the same thing. Priests make their living by being priests. And just in classic Paul fashion, if that wasn't enough, he goes to one last tier. And he, this would be his driving point. Even the Lord Jesus Christ backs him up. He says in verse 14, 
In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's likely quoting Matthew 10.10 here by when Jesus says the laborer is due his wage. The point, though, is that Paul agrees with the Corinthians. He has every right to take their money. Ordinary practices, scriptural precedent, common sense, religious custom, and even Jesus himself says so. So there is substance, there is a foundation for the reality of this entitlement. In all human beings, we all have a basic and alienable rights, and society can only function when we abide by them. We have the right to the nation in which we live. We have the entitlements of the law that make up that nation. We deserve, on a fundamental level, not to be lied to. We deserve not to be cheated. We deserve to earn a decent wage for the work that we do. But before we get too excited about our entitlements, we have to recognize that entitlements cut the other way as well. People deserve to be punished for their lying. They deserve to be condemned for their cheating. They deserve to get fired from their job when they get paid for work that they did not do because they cut corners. In other words, the world of rights and entitlements, they feel safe to us because it offers us balanced scales. But on the other hand, it also feels dangerous to us because it offers us balanced scales. The economy of entitlement only truly works if the scales are perfectly balanced. We have a right not to be lied to, but so does everyone else. So if we lie to others, you deserve to be punished for your lying. Now, of course, we don't live in a perfect world, and people get away with all types of breaches of protocol. Little white lies pass under the radar all the time. But if people take the principle of entitlement to its natural end, and we see it all the way through, we balance every scale and use every right that's entitled to us, then we also need to punish every wrong. Now, depending who you are, from one angle, that sounds like perfection. That sounds like justice to you. But on the other perspective, that sounds like prison. If we live in a life according to the realities of entitlement, we find ourselves handcuffed by our own worldview. People desperately desire to live in a world where it's not about scorekeeping, one-upping, checks and balances, tit-for-tat, owing, earning, or deserving. People want to live in a world where they don't have to constantly have to shore up their reputation and cover up all their mistakes with a creative, revisionistic, autobiographical knife because they're afraid and scared to death of being put on trial by the people around them. So they lie about who they are, especially on social media. We want to live in a world where we don't put oppressive demands on our friends, on our families, on our leaders to conform to the script that we have written to them. We want to stop filtering people out of our lives. We want people to stop filtering us out of their lives. But to put it flatly, that world will never exist if our principal approach as individuals to life is one of rights and entitlements. That world can never exist if we're all the protagonists at the center of our own individual life story. That ideal world, which many might describe as peaceful, flourishing, harmonious, fulfilling, and beautiful, can never exist if life is primarily about what you or I want or deserve or entitled to, what I have the right to demand of others. If that's how we function, if that's how we only see the relationships around us, 
that world will never be attained. The only world that is really free, the only world that we want to live in is the one where we are free of ourselves. Free from the ceaseless scorekeeping that we have in our mind, the insistent card counting, the criteria meeting, the accomplishment amazing, the credential checking world that we have built for ourselves. In our attempt to hold up our rights and our entitlements, we have written scripts for ourselves that we can't even measure up to. And not only that, we can't even measure up to the scripts that others have written for us either. Our rights and our entitlements have gotten us in quite a bind. And is there a way to break free? That's the question. Is there a way to, is there an alternate universe that we can hop into where people don't have to cling to all their entitlements and rights that they are due? Where we can love others when they are unlovable. Where others will love us when we are unlovable where we can give to others even when they don't deserve it, where we can be given to when we don't deserve it, where we can forgive others who have trampled on our rights, or when we can be forgiven when we trample on the rights of others rather than trying to get even. Paul points the way forward to this type of mindset, and we'll consider that in my final point, which is the ends of entitlement. Paul has just finished his five-tier defense of why he is, has a right to make a living. And the amazing turn comes when Paul says, even though he has that right, he would never exercise his right. He says in verse 12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So if anyone is actually entitled to anything in this passage, it's Paul. Yet he's the very one who says he is not interested in those entitlements. He has rights, but he's not interested in using them. Remember, he's using this in the context of last week. He's using this as an example of, hey, just because I have the right to go eat that tainted meat that's been sacrificed to idols doesn't mean I should go exercise that right. I'm not talking about your fundamental rights as humans to health care and things like that. We're talking about rights and, and entitlements that we have in relationships and things that we think we are due from others. Paul's saying he's done with leveraging his position and title and pedigree for gain. He's been there. He's done that. And it's left him wanting. Hey, he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's respected among his peers. But it left him wanting. He is far too interested in the work that he has to do, which is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually does, how he, the language is here, he doesn't even give himself room to choose something else. He's saying he's a slave to this. He can't do anything but preach the gospel. And he's not concerned about any of the benefits that may accompany it, including financial compensation. So what happened to Paul? How did he get this free? How, how did he get to the point where he's actually turning down money for work that he's doing? He's working with a new paradigm, one that is almost impossible for us to get our heads around, but verses 15 to 18 help us understand just what's happening with Paul. Starting in verse 15, it says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provisions, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I will be entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward, you might ask? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So in verse 15, Paul makes it clear that this whole spiel has not been about an underhanded attempt to get the Corinthians to give him money. In fact, he says, I'd rather die than take your money. Yes, Paul can be dramatic too, okay? But verse 16 and 17 lay out Paul's calling as an apostle. He has been trusted with a stewardship. Someone else has given him a treasure that he is responsible to protect, to invest, and to steward. And that treasure is the gospel. He has to preach the gospel out of necessity. He has no choice. And in verse 16, his language recalls that of the Old Testament prophets when they pronounce a woe upon themselves. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For Paul, preaching the gospel is his calling. It's who he is. It's not optional. However, what is optional to Paul is exercising his rights and entitlements. And that, and, and what, so what is it that has allowed Paul to set all that aside? to break free from the economy of entitlement, to work free of charge, to abandon the display of the powerful, eloquent leader in favor of being himself. And by the way, his working free of charge doesn't mean you go quit your job. He's using this as an example, remember. I have rights. I'm not exercising rights. You have rights as Christians that you could exercise that might hurt and make someone else stumble, and you should not exercise those either. And that's the case that Paul is laying out here. But simply put, Paul has found something better than his rights and entitlements. He has discovered a new paradigm where he is no longer at the center of the solar system. He has set aside his special life narrative, all of its attendant demands, in favor of a new life narrative and something else. Someone else is now at the center. And verse 18 gives us Paul's reasoning for throwing out his self-centered script. He says, what is my reward? That my preaching, in my preaching, I may present the gospel of Jesus Christ free of charge so as not to make use of any of my rights in the gospel. Paul has found a reward that is more valuable than his rights. He is exhilarated by the freeness of the gospel. It's free, he's shouting. It's free, your whole world runs on purchasing, paying, earning, deserving, and entitlement. The gospel doesn't run on any of that, he says. It's free to everyone. I want you to know this so badly, he's saying. I want you to experience this, this good news for yourself so much that he chose to live in a way that's going to call their whole system into question. Paul's saying, I'm going off script. Yeah, that's going to frustrate you. But you have to see that the game of entitlement, exercising your rights just because you have them, is a joke. What kind of news leads a man to work for free? What words would we have to hear to give up our act of entitlement? What would, we, what would need to be said to us today to lay down our entitlements? What kind of message would we need to hear in order to tear up the script that we have written for our spouse, that we have written for our kids, for our family, for our co-workers, and for those in our life? What would it take to knock us off the director chair of our life, of our special life narrative? What gospel would we need to hear in order to give up our sense of entitlement? What we need to hear is this. We need to hear clearly and plainly 
that we, need, we can stop trying to achieve, purchase, and, and, and deserve everything and search after everything and be enslaved after all these different things because Jesus says here, it's all here, free of charge in me, take it. Everything that you've been searching for is here. That sense of security that you've been trying to achieve, the one that has made you buy into a special life narrative, he says, take it, it's free. It's in me. That love and affection that you've been trying to buy from others so you carefully choose your words not to cause offense or you have sheer romantic willpower with an individual. He says, take it, it's free. You're not going to find that in a relationship. It's here in me. That respect and that dignity that you so desperately desire that drove you through hours of graduate school that made you stay late every night and forsake your family at the office so people would look at you with respect in your career. He says, take it. It's free. Everything you need, your identity, the thing that you are searching for, take it. It's all free in me. Find it in me. These are outlandish claims, but they are outlandish claims of the free of charge gospel that we encounter in Jesus Christ. And it's there that we learn that Jesus, the ultimately entitled one of the universe, mysteriously and graciously chose to write himself into the script of the world. He came preaching freedom. Freedom from our special life narrative. Freedom from our entitlement and our self-absorption. And what did we do? We put him on trial. We examined him. We found him guilty. We filtered him out and we wrote him out of the script. Such a threat was Jesus to our self-absorption, to our entitlement economy, to our individualistic solar system that we had to snuff him out. We erased him. And at that moment, on the cross, when Jesus was pierced for you and for me, when he could have exercised all of his entitlements, all of his privileges, all of his rights, commanded an army to take him off that cross and, and tell the world to work the way that he wanted it to, he rather submitted to our deletion. He submitted to our filtering out. We erased him. And yet mystery of mystery, wisdom of wisdom, as the Bible would have it. Ironically, our, most, our worst directorial moment that we've ever had, that moment when we killed, you and I killed the Son of God with our sin. God uses that to rewrite the script of history. And in the resurrection of Jesus, it proves that once and for all, guess what? You're not in charge. You never were. We've been deluded, duped, deceived into thinking that we run the world. But in Jesus Christ, the one who actually runs the world has broken in to announce to all of us today that the jig is up. And that just happens to be the best news that we need to hear today. The jig is up. The game is over. Everything you've been searching for, everything you've been trying to buy, everything you've been trying to shove into that void of your heart to make you feel satisfied is offered to you for free today in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price, Isaiah 55.1. It's the free of charge gospel, church, and it's free to you. Stop running to other sources of satisfaction. Stop running to your entitlements to make you feel secure. Run to Jesus, church.
Run to Jesus. It's the free of charge gospel that sets us free from the grips of entitlement. We are free to give up the dictatorship of our life, the director's chair of our life, which means that we are able to perceive the world properly without an inflated sense of ego and, and, and entitlement and, and, and whatnot. And we are free to stop writing the scripts of the people in our lives. And we don't have to hand them a script anymore because we no longer need them to play a certain role to fulfill us. We are free to let them just be them. We can enter into a relationship with them truly instead of guilt-tripping them and pressuring them into a version that fits into our narrative. The free-of-charge gospel allows us, church, to stop putting the world around us on trial. We can forgive and find room for the people whom we've once attempted to write off and write out. Ironically, it's in the giving up of our entitlements and our rights that we are placed in a position of being able to care about the rights and entitlements of that person sitting next to you today. That we can actually fight for justice, not for ourselves, but for others. It's the free of charge gospel that allows us to receive life as a gift in and of itself, as an undeserved, unearned, unpurchasable, unentitled, given thing. So church, I pray that this absurd, this profound, this free charge of gospel would stop us dead in our tracks, that we would see Jesus stepping in to the trading floors of our economy of entitlement, and hear him announce in front of all those standing there, the jig is up. Come, you who hunger and thirst, come and eat and drink of me, and you will never thirst again. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are the picture of what it means to give up all of our rights and our entitlements. We have so much that is due to us. We have so much liberty and so much freedom as Christians. But Father, just like your son Jesus, who had the same and had more, chose to surrender those, chose to be obedient to you to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Lord, may our lives mimic the life of our Savior, as Ephesians says, that we would be imitators of God. Father, that we would look to what we are doing that is potentially causing a stumbling block to the gospel of those around us. And Father, that we, although hard, although difficult, would surrender our same entitlements and rights for the sake of the gospel to go forward. Father, this is the key to end gossip. This is the key to end division. This is the key to unity within the church. When we go, how can I live for the one next to me rather than how can I just live for myself? Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you, Lord, for those sitting in front of me and those who are online. Father, may your spirit bless them as we go to sing our closing song. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.